Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our Torah studies. And this week, we begin the book of Exodus, or in Hebrew, as it's called, Shemot. Now, as I go through these studies, uh, you've probably picked up by now, I'm doing things a little differently this time around. Um, I'm assuming that all of you have read the Torah portion, are familiar with it. If you aren't, you need to go back and read it first, and then come back and pick up the teaching here. Uh, And you can always go back to previous Torah cycle teachings I've done over the years and hear what I have to say about the portion. But this, uh, since this is my last time around as the congregational leader of Beth Tikkun, I'm I'm focusing more on what you might call the seasonings of the Torah. Some of the little things that speak big messages, at least they do to me. And uh, so, I'm assuming you're familiar with the portion, that you've studied it before, probably heard some teachings I've done on it before, and this time we just want to bring the dessert, so to speak, and fill in the corners. So, let's get started. Our portion begins, of course, at the very beginning of the book of Exodus and goes through chapter 6, verse 1. And the name of the book, as I said, is Shemot. Now, the word Shemot means names. The names of the Torah books are derived from the first major word in the opening sentence of that book. And the first major word in Exodus 1.1 is the word Shemot. And this is the first verse of Exodus. It reads like this. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt of Jacob, each with his household. So we see the word names there. These are the names. Now, in Hebrew, it looks like this. Va'ela means and these are the shemot. And there's the word names, shemot. These are the names of who? B'nai Yisrael, the sons of Israel, or we would say the children of Israel. Ha-ba'im. Ha-ba'im means who were coming. The word for come is the word bo. So Ha-ba'im means the coming ones. So these are the names of the sons of Israel coming to Egypt with Jacob and with his household. Now you've noticed that I've uh, changed the color of the first initial letters of Shemot, B'nai, Yisrael, Habaim. Because when we take these four letters, they spell the word Shivya, which means captivity. These are the kinds of things rabbis do. They look at each word, each letter, uh, the orders of the, of the words, and why certain words are used other than, uh, than other ones. And uh, they're always seeing new messages and things come forth. And we know that since God is omniscient, since he's placed every letter, every jot and tittle in his Torah the way he saw fit, that it all has meaning. It all has design. And there's no question in my mind that these initial letters, the names of the sons of Israel coming, spell the word captivity, shivya. And the end of Genesis described the Jacob and his children all coming down to Egypt, 70 souls. And they came down in great blessing and, and with a, a warm welcome from Pharaoh and the people. But as you fast forward a few hundred years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, things have changed. Things have changed. Now, God had told Abraham centuries earlier 
that the Israelites would be in captivity. If you go back to Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, God is making a blood covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, Now know for certain that your offspring, your seed, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants or slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And the book of Exodus describes this. But the question comes up, why? Why did God see fit to send the children of Abraham to Egypt to be afflicted, to be slaves for such a long period of time, if God's just going to bring them back out again and bring them back home to where Abraham is at the time that God prophesied this to him. What's the purpose of all this suffering? Well, the Bible comments on this. In Deuteronomy, Moses tells the children of Israel, but Adonai has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt. The iron furnace. That's an interesting term. He's brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. And then Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you. This is what an iron furnace is for, to bring refinement. I have refined you, but not as silver. No, with silver and with other precious metals or any kind of metal, if you heat it up to a liquid state, the impurities in the metal float to the top, and they can be skimmed off. I've done this before when I was teaching school. We would melt uh, lead and, and copper, and you could see all the impurities just come right to the top. You could skim them off, so the metal that's left is pure. He says, by refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. In other words, it wasn't a physical heat. It was something spiritual I did. I brought suffering into your life, so that I could refine you and purify you and remove the dross from your lives. Yeshua does the same thing. John the Immerser said, As for me, I immerse you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's the purpose of the fire? A lot of people think, oh, this means he's going to empower them with the Holy Spirit. There may be a slight allusion to this, but that is not the real purpose of what John is saying here. He's saying when Messiah comes, he's like a purifier's fire, and he will purify his people. He will take them through the things they need to go through, including you and me, so that he can refine us, remove the things from our life that pollute us, and to make us the people he wants us to be. Yeshua's brother, James, wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How many of us do that? We count it all joy. Oh, good, another trial, another problem, another test of faith. But we're told to count it all joy because God's behind it. And he goes on, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. Perfect means mature. 
and complete, lacking in nothing. So if God brings suffering to our lives, it's not to just inflict pain for pain's sake. Only a monster does that. But God, as a loving Father, introduces pain into our lives in a very measured way so as to have a good effect because when he brings discipline and testing and pain, it's always to make us better than we are. Always. Now, the book of Exodus is called the book of names. And there's something we, I want you to capture with this. Your true name, the person you are, is discovered only through testing. When a baby's born, it's, re- it's gone through no testing yet, and we, we give it a name. In rabbinic uh, uh, theology or tradition, it's believed that when parents name a child, the Holy Spirit inspires them to give them a name <clears throat> that describes their character. Maybe so, I know in some cases in the Scripture, many cases in the Bible, this is true. I'm not so sure about a lot of the modern names I hear. But we, our names, the, the person we are, and in, in Hebraic thought, a person's name is their essence. This is why God sometimes changes a person's name, because he's done a work in their lives, and it's now time to change the name to something that reflects the essence of who they now are. But your true name is discovered only through suffering. Because in suffering, you become more the person God wants you to be. He intends you to be the person you're supposed to be. And you begin to derive your true name. We even see this in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes the sufferings that Messiah went through until finally he's crucified. And then in verse 9, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God bestowed a name that is above every name on Yeshua because of the things he suffered. And not just for his own sake, but especially for ours. Through suffering, we become what God wants us to be. We become the pure people, the true people that he wants us to be. In Proverbs 22.1, Solomon writes, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Now, in some translations, you'll see the word good in parentheses. Because, I'm sorry, not parentheses, but in italics, because the question is, is the word really there in the Hebrew? In the Hebrew, it reads like this, a name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold, and the word good is in the verse, but it's right here as the very last word in the verse. In other words, it may be talking about good silver and good gold. But uh, some translators put the word up here at the front as a good name. 
But I think that adjective good is way too far away from the noun that it modifies to really apply to the word name. Now in Ecclesiastes, it does say a good name. But here in Proverbs, it's a name is to be chosen rather than great riches. In other words, to be the person you're supposed to be. That is the thing that we are to desire more than anything else. So you can wrestle that and make your own decision as to whether the word good modifies the word name or it modifies silver and gold. But what's in the name? Names are important things in Scripture. Um, names are not just uh, identifying numbers. Uh, they're not just an ID tag in the spiritual realm. Names are to express the essence. When, when God brought the animals before Adam so he could name them, it wasn't so he could just make up some words to assign to these, these particular uh, collections of traits and features that each animal exhibited. No, it was so that Adam could look at that animal, study its traits, its features, its behavior, and then find out what name describes those features, describes those abilities and those traits. So he was looking for the name that matches the essence of what that animal is, and he named the animals that way. And in fact, when God, it, it says that when God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils and man became a living soul, that word for breath that is used there can be translated breath, but it's, more, it's better translated the spiritual essence because the word that is used is the word neshama. And I can't talk and write at the same time, so let me start again. It's the word neshama. Nun, shin, mem, hey. Neshama. He breathed into Adam's nostrils the neshama of life, and man became a nefesh chaya, a living soul. So here's the word neshama, which is the very spiritual essence. But look what's right in the middle. Shin, mem, the Hebrew word for name. Your name is to be your essence. Maybe this is why Revelation tells us that someday we each get a new name. Because we're not the same people now that we were five or ten years ago or when we were children. And we're continuing to change and continuing to grow and develop into who God wants us to be. So it's only appropriate that we should get a name to match what, uh, what we really are. So just as Adam assigned the appropriate name to each animal, God's going to assign a new name to each of us. So I asked the question, what's in the name? And uh, so let's just have some fun here. Let's go through the Hebrew and, uh, and look at some of the fascinating things, at least fascinating to me, that uh, things that are revealed through the Hebrew and the Hebrew letters. So here we have Shem. It's also the name of uh, Adam and Eve's, uh, or of Noah's son. There's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Shem means name. But if you pronounce that same word, Sham, don't have to change the spelling, just say Sham instead of Shem, it means there. There is Shem. There's the door. There's the house. Now, let me explain something here quickly. This letter 
at the end of Shem is a mem, and this letter is also a mem. They are exactly the same letter. But mem is one of those letters that changes shape when it appears at the end of a Hebrew word. It's still a mem, it just looks different. So don't be confused when mem looks one way in one place and then it changes in a different place. That's just the way Hebrew works. There are five letters that do that. Now, the word shem, name, is made of the letter shin, which is always considered to be the letter of fire. The word esh means fire. And shin makes a sh or s sound, and it looks like a flame. Uh, the name of the letter shin means tooth, but teeth and fire have something in common. They both consume. And uh, you could imagine this being a tooth and the root sticking up. It's an upper tooth. But um, throughout Hebraic thought, it's always thought to be the letter of fire. But mem, its name, in fact, means water. And if you've been listening to my teachings for any time at all, you know that Whenever the Bible describes fire and water existing together in peace and harmony, God's presence is there. And you may be thinking, well, where in the Bible do you find fire and water dwelling together in, in harmony? In many places. And I'm not going to take time now to go through all the places where this happens. We'll be seeing some of those places here in Exodus. But one of my favorites, one of my favorite go-tos is in Revelation when John describes the throne room of God. And he says that his throne was on a sea of glass. It was surrounded by a sea of glass. It doesn't mean the sea was made from glass. The sea was made from water. But the, it was so calm, it looked like glass. There was not a single ripple. It was utter and total peace. There was no disturbance. But it said, flashing through the water, through the sea, was lightning, which is always a picture of fire. So we see fire and water dwelling together in harmony without one disturbing the other. So let me just insert something here. The only one true name is the name of God. And it's from him that we all come forth. All of us in some way are a spark of him a spark that's been defiled and been marred and, uh, by sin and by being beaten up in this life. But nevertheless, we're made in his image. All of us to some degree bear a spark, a, a small essence of his name because his nishama is within us. And as we grow and mature, and as suffering does its perfect work in us, we should be displaying his name more and more. His name is spelled yud heh vav -Hey, as we discover in this chapter, in chapter 3, in, in Exodus. And his name we do not know how to pronounce because it is a verb. His name is a verb. It's unpronounceable. No one knows how it's pronounced. But we are to pronounce it and proclaim it nonetheless. How do we do that? Well, since his name is a verb, we proclaim his name through our actions and through our lives and not with our lips. We can see everyone else's name with our lips, but God's name we pronounce through our lives. 
And so the more we grow, the more we mature, our deeds should be pronouncing his shim. And to do that, we have to express the essence of fire and of water. Sometimes we have to be a lion and other times a lamb. Sometimes we bring heat, maybe even some pain. And other times we bring the cleansing and the coolness and the refreshing of water. When we look at Yeshua's life and at his words, most of the time he was water. He was bringing life-giving water, living water to people who were thirsty. But there were other times he had to bring some fire. And we know that when he returns, he really comes bringing some fire. So we need to be very careful. One of the most difficult things for me is knowing when to be a lion and when to be a lamb, when to express the essence of fire and when to express the essence of water. Some people find it very difficult to express their lionness in their lives. They're very meek and just very quiet. They just don't want to ever rock the boat. Other people have a very difficult time expressing the lamb essence and just being still and being, being water. But to know how to express these at the right time and to the right degree is a very difficult thing. It requires great wisdom. And uh, I'm still trying to figure that one out. But the word shim, name, has the essence of fire and the essence of water. Now, this next word is the word shemaim. It takes the word shem and puts it in a plural form. There's shem, and when you put an im on the end, that's plural. Ot or im at the end of a word indicates a plural. Shemaim is the word for heaven. And since it's a plural word, sometimes translations use the term heavens, the heavens in the earth, but it's always shemaim. And since the word shem means there, and the plural of that means heavens, we can derive that everything we seek, everything we're looking for is there. It's in heaven. And won't it be wonderful when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, as will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Won't that be incredible? You know, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created Hashemaim, the heavens, the et ha'aretz, and the earth. So when you're reading that, you see the word heavens first, and then as you keep going, the earth. And the word aretz, earth, comes from the word ratza, which means to run. And this world is a place where we're always running. And where are we always trying to get to? Well, we boil it all down. We're trying to get there. Get to the place where we are in God's presence. And yet the scriptures go from right to left. In the beginning created Hishamayim vet Haaretz. And off we go running. The opposite direction. But as we run through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and the prophets and the writings and, the, and, uh, and, and through the Gospels and Paul's letters, eventually we come to Revelation and we're in Shemaim. To get from earth to heaven, we have to go the long way around. God has ordained that we go through this life, 
through this war zone that we're born into and through the sufferings it has for us. It's just the way it is. But uh, we continue to run. Eventually we learn to walk. And then eventually we learn to rest in him. So that's another story. Now, <clears throat> many times when we refer to God, we just say Hashem. And that's what this word is. There again, you see the word Shem. And when you put a hey in front of a word, it means the. There is no Hebrew word for the. You just put a hey on the front of a word. Hashem means the name. This is why we hear people say, Baruch Hashem, bless the name. But what they really mean is, bless Adonai, bless the Lord. And who is the one who reveals God's name to us? Well, it's Moses. And again, it's in chapter 3 of Exodus. We look at the name Moshe. This is the name Moses, pronounced Moshe. You're going to notice something. It's Hashem spelled backwards. Instead of Hey, Shin, Mem. We have Mem, Shin, Hey. Moses is not Hashem, but Moses is through Moses that God reveals who Hashem is, what the name is, and who the name is. Now, what other title, what other name do you know that begins with Mem, Shin, Mosh? If you're thinking Mashiach, You're exactly right. And that's the next word, Mashiach, which means Messiah. Mashiach, and there you can see the first two letters of Moses' name, Mem Shin. Backwards, that's the word Shim. In fact, if we rearrange those letters, it spells Shim Chai, which means a living name. Mashiach, rearrange the letters, spells Shem Chai, a living name. And let's take one last word. Here we have the word Shalom. And now you know what to look for. You see the Shin at the beginning, and you see the Mem at the end, which spell name. And in the middle we have two letters, Lamad Vav, which make a word of their own. That word, lo, means to him. A person who gives themselves to God, and they put themselves within him and realize that in him we live and move and have our being, and they've given their lives to him, they have shalom. They have peace. And they dwell in the midst of the fire and the water. They dwell in the midst of God's presence, and there's where you find peace. Just like the sea of glass with a lightning going through it, nothing disturbs it. And these dwell in harmony. And you dwell in the midst of fear of God and love of God, the fire and the water. And there's utter shalom, utter peace. The word shalom also means completion and perfection, maturity. And we'll never get per- become perfect in this world, but we should become mature. And God has given us his word. He's placed his name within us. 
because he has adopted us and brought us into his name as well. So anyways, these are ways the rabbis play with these letters, and uh, only in the Hebrew can we derive some of these seasonings of the Torah. Now what I find interesting in this story, as we go on a little further into chapter 1, we haven't gotten far at all, just the first verse, but you know the story. Um, Pharaoh becomes fearful of the um, the growing numbers of Israelites, and he realizes they are multiplying so quickly that if ever a war comes up, they may join with our enemies, and then what are we going to do? We'll be completely outnumbered. And so he calls the midwives and says, here's the deal. From now on, when a Jewish woman gives birth, if it's a girl, fine, just let the girl live. But if it's a boy, you, you chuck him into the river, into the Nile and you drown him. But we're told in verse 13, and I love these Hebrew midwives. It says in chapter 1, verse 13, um, that, well, I'll just read it. It says, The Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel with crushing harshness. They embittered their lives with hard work, with mortar, with bricks, and with every labor of the field. All their labors that they performed with them were with crushing harshness. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, verse 15, of whom the name of the first was Shifra, and the name of the second was Pua. Shifra means beauty. Pua means cry of travail. And he said, when you deliver the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you are to kill him. And if it is a daughter, you shall, she shall live. But the midwives, get this, verse 17, but the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt spoke to them. And they caused the boys to live. What I find interesting is that um, even before we get the name of Moses or we're told the names of Moses' parents, we're given the names of the Hebrew midwives that appear only here because they set an example of fear of God and because they feared God, they feared nothing else. Because a person who truly fears God has courage to do what he says and to go through what he ordains. But the person who does not fear God is always going to be looking for an escape and will always get themselves in hotter water and deeper trouble than if they had just obeyed because they don't have the courage to follow him. And it tells us here Since the midwives feared God, they did not do what the king said. They disobeyed him. And so in verse 18, Pharaoh, he summons the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing that you have caused the boys to live? And the midwives lie. Midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are unlike Egyptian women, for they are experts. Before the midwife comes to them, they have given birth. Verse 20, listen. God benefited the midwives, and the people increased, became very strong. And it was because the midwives feared God 
that he made them houses. He made them houses. A better translation might be households. He gave them households. He gave them families of their own. But there's something deep going on here. Here's another seasoning of the Torah. We often think about how God created this world in six days, and it's beautiful. He did an incredible job. Six days, and we have all of this. We have the universe. But then Yeshua says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And we often think that if he could do this in six days, oh my goodness, how wonderful must it be if he's been spending 2,000 years preparing a place for us to be. But does it really take him that long? Prepare a place for us to be, a house for us to be with his father and him? Of course not. Why does it take so long? Because the house we build with God is the house we build in this life by continuing to submit ourselves to him, by going through the things that he gives us to go through. Because you see, as you build your name, as you Walk in obedience with him. You are building your house in cooperation with him. We are the living stones, and he is the stonemason. And together, when we cooperate with him, a house is built. And this is something that cannot be rushed. It takes a lifetime for you and Messiah to build your house. And you are part of a greater house of all the other lives of people, the bride of Messiah who have given themselves to him. So to build your name is to build your house. To build your name by submitting your life to God and reflecting who he is in your life, this is how your house is built. And it must be built out of love for God, not a fear of God, and out of fear of nothing else. So these midwives were given their names. That wasn't necessary. There are more important people in the Bible, or it seemed more important, that we're not given the names of, but we're given the names of these two. We're told about how they feared God more than Pharaoh, the mightiest man in the world at that time. They feared God more. Because of that, God blessed them. He gave them houses. And their names are recorded forever here in God's Torah. What an incredible God we have. I skipped over a verse here that I did not mean to. And uh, it's in chapter 1, verse 13. It says, the Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel. In Hebrew, it, it, uh, it reads like this. V'ayivdu mitzrayim, and they served. This comes from the word avad. When you pronounce that evad, it means a servant or a slave. But you can make it a verb as well. Avdu, and they serve them, uh, or, or enslave them. Who enslaved them? Mitzrayim, Egypt. Who did they enslave? At this point, always to the direct object, and who they enslaved was B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. But that verb, Avdu, and they enslave, can also mean served. It could read just as easily this way. And the Egyptians served the children of Israel. Now we know that the Egyptians did not serve the children of Israel, but in Hebrew, if you just lifted that out of the context and asked someone to translate it, you could translate it either way. 
they enslaved, the Egypt enslaved the children of Israel, or the Egyptians served the children of Israel. So which is it? It's both. Because as they enslaved the children of Israel, Egypt was being used as that iron furnace to refine and to purify, to take Israel through the sufferings they needed to go through so God could birth a nation. You can think of their sufferings in Egypt as being a fetus that grows so quickly inside of the womb of its mother over a period of nine months. From two cells that form a zygote, and it grows into billions and billions of cells. In nine months, when it's born, you have a human being. You can think of the darkness and the heat and the constriction, and the word mitzrium means constriction. You can think of mitzrium as being the womb. And God sent 70 souls in the Mitzrayim. And when they came out, they were hundreds of thousands of Jews, plus a great mixed multitude that were brought out through the waters of the Red Sea, and a nation is birthed. So, you could say the womb enslaves the, the uh, infant, but the womb serves the infant as well. And so what did Pharaoh tell the midwives? He says, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool. Now that phrase, upon the birth stool, in Hebrew is this. All ha'avnim. All ha'avnim. And if you know Hebrew at all, you know that the word evan is the word stone. And the word ha'avnim means the stones. And there's your plural ending again. You see them on the stones. Now we know these are birth stones uh, because somehow we don't know exactly how it worked, but there was, it, it, there was some kind of a, a thing they sat on, maybe with rocks they could put their feet on that would assist them and, and alleviate the stress of giving birth. I don't understand at all. I'm the only person in my household who's not a huge fan of call the midwife, but... Uh, Anyways, whatever these stones were, they were something that assisted the, the mother in giving birth. But this phrase, all ha'avanim, on the stones, is found exactly four times in the scriptures. And when you look at these, it's interesting to see the context. The first one is here in Exodus 1.16, where we could translate ha'avanim, the birth stool, or literally the stones. But in Deuteronomy 27.8, it's, Moses is told to cut out two stones and then God engraves on the stones, all ha'avanim, his ten words, his ten commandments. Then Joshua 8.2, when Joshua brings the Israelites across the Jordan River, they stacked up stones and they covered them with plaster and then they wrote the Torah, all ha'avanim, on the stones. Then Jeremiah 18.3, it refers to God as being a potter and we as being the clay. And God shapes us, all ha'avanim, on the stones. Or as it's translated, the potter's wheel. But in all four cases, regardless of how your translation translates it, the phrase is always the same, all ha'avanim, on the stones. 
And so when we look at this, we see that in the middle two, in these two instances, we're talking about God's Torah on the stones. But in the first and in the last, we're talking about the birth of a human being and God's shaping of that human being. So in the first and fourth, talk about people being born and being shaped by God. But in two and three, we read about God recording his word. We're to be living stones. And Messiah is our stonemason, and he shapes us. As a potter shapes clay on a wheel, our stonemason chips away at us and shapes us to exactly what he wants us to be. But we're living stones. It requires our cooperation. It requires our being still while he does his supernatural surgery upon us. But the purpose of this is so that we can proclaim his name. We can proclaim his word. That we can be living epistles. We can be living sacrifices. And his word can be written upon us. We, we can proclaim it. He wants to engrave his name in our lives, deeply into our lives. He wants to write his word into our lives so that our deeds and our words reflect the truth of his word. He wants us to be living examples of who he is. He wants to restore his image in us, to, re- to rightly represent him. And I just think these four passages, and these are the only four, where all Ha'avanim appears. I think they're very instructive for us. So here's the verse I was, I was <laughs> uh, searching around for earlier, but the midwives feared God, and, they, um, and so he, he gave them houses, and they, they feared God more than Pharaoh. I love this quote from Dennis Prager, and if you don't own a copy of Dennis Prager's commentary on the book of Exodus, you need to get one. It's, it's a wonderful book. He's doing commentaries on all five books of the Torah, but he started with Exodus. For some reason, he started there. Then he did Genesis, and I think Leviticus is the next one coming out. But listen to what he says. Those who feared God saved Hebrew babies, while those who feared Pharaoh helped drown Hebrew babies. It was the midwives' fear of God that liberated them from fear of the Egyptian tyrant. This point is overlooked. Fear of God is a liberating emotion, freeing one from a disabling fear of evil, powerful people. As I have often said, if we truly fear God in a healthy way, we fear nothing else. And then we find something else interesting on on this same subject. We find in chapter 3, God calling Moses and giving him instructions to return to Egypt. Now, this is 40 years after he'd fled from Egypt. To return to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go so we can go into the wilderness and, and so on. And Moses didn't want to go. Moses was lacking in proper healthy fear of God. Because if he'd had healthy fear of God, He would have gone right away. But instead, Moses begins to offer excuses. Well, who are you? Who are you that I I should go? 
Who am I? Why pick me? And the people won't believe me. And God addresses each of these. And then finally, Moses says, send somebody else. I don't want to go. Just send somebody else. And then, at that point, God got angry. Because Moses says, I can't talk well. I'm just not a good public speaker. So God gets angry. He says, well, Aaron's coming towards you. He can talk good. We'll let him be the talker. And oh, what a mess that was. What a mess. And it makes me ask the question, does God ever compromise? Does God ever compromise? Because it looks like God did here. Because when Moses simply said, send someone else, God said, okay, all right. I don't want to send someone else. I want you to be the spokesman. But all right, here comes Aaron. We'll let him be the speaker. And what a mess that turned out to be. Remember the whole incident of the golden calf? That was Aaron. And there are other mistakes and errors that are made. Now, Aaron was a wonderful guy. He's a great guy. He had a purpose. God had a purpose for him. But when Moses decided, no, I can't really fully walk in what you're asking me to do, then that compromise introduced weakness and it introduced damage. Why is this? Why does God compromise on this? Well, I think Rabbi Hanina, I believe that was his name, almost 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, he said, everything is in the hands of God except for fear of God. Let me say that again. Everything is in the hands of God. He runs the world, but there's one thing that he leaves up to you and me, and that's our fear of God. Our fear of God is completely in our control. And so when Moses lacked fear of God and chose not to fear him, but to argue with him, to resist his will, God said, okay. And here's Aaron. Oh, what a mess. How many lives that cost when later on Aaron would be the instrument for making the golden calf. And there are plenty of of examples of people who did not fear God and God let them have their way. I think of Lot, who Hebrews refers to as, as righteous Lot. And when Lot and his uncle Abram parted ways, Abram said, listen, Lot, if you go to the north, I'll go to the south. And if you want to go to the south, I'll go to the north. So Lot looks around and he decides, I'm going east. That wasn't an option, but that's where he went. He went to Sodom. Later, when God comes and, and to destroy Sodom, he sends his angels to take Lot and his family and to, to get them out. And as Sodom comes under destruction, the angel says, okay, go that away. There's a city. You go straight there. And Lot says, oh, that's so far, and can't we just go, go here? This is closer. And so he does. Because everything's in the hands of God except the fear of God, and Lot still did not fear God. He was not afraid to disobey him. And so he winds up in a cave with his two daughters. We know how that turned out. Incest, and then the births of Moab and Ammon. And what a problem they were later on. How about when uh, the Israelites 
come up to the Jordan River and they're ready to go across. But before they even see the other side, Reuben and Gad come to Moses and say, you know what? We have a lot of cattle. This over here on this side of the Jordan is cattle land. This is good enough. We don't have to go in there to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. This is good enough. Can we just stay here? It made Moses spitting mad. But everything's in the hands of God except the fear of God. And Reuben and Gad lacked in fear of God. So they got to stay. Well, what happened as a result? Manasseh is torn in half. One tribe is split. And half of the tribe of Manasseh stays with them. Later on, we read in the book of Joshua, Judges, about how a war almost broke out because of the things that were going on there with Reuben and Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Then later on, they fell into idolatry, one of the first ones to be carried away into captivity. Didn't work out, but that was their choice, and God allowed it. Oh, and the classic one, how can we forget Jacob? Well, Jacob was still living in, uh, in Padan Aram uh, under Laban's <laughs> strange authority. God speaks to him and says, time to go home. Go home. And so Jacob calls his wives and says, this is what we're going to do. And they said, fine, let's go. And they take off. And when they cross over and they're, they're in the land and they're, they're getting ready to... Uh, to, uh, to, to go home, Jacob learns that his brother Esau's twin brother is coming at him with 300 men. So he sends his family and everything across. You know the story. And he wrestles there with God all night. But he still didn't have proper fear of God. God told him to go home. But he's restored to his twin brother Esau. They embrace. They weep on one another's necks. And Esau says... Let me, my 300 men, let us accompany you. We'll escort you home to, to, to our father Isaac. So God provides Jacob quality time with his twin brother Esau and protection so they can go home. But what does Jacob say? Oh no, my little ones, my children, they're, of, they're tender. Oh, and there's the nursing flocks. The journey be too rough for them. You go on. We'll make it at our own pace. Everything's in the hands of God except the fear of God. And for whatever reason, Jacob didn't want to do what God said, which is go home. Instead of going on south, going home, where Esau was going, back to their father Isaac, he goes north. He goes up to Shechem. And what happens? What happens to his precious children there? One of his children, his daughter Dina, is raped. So much for Jacob protecting his kids. And then, in retribution, Simeon and Levi go and they wipe out all the men of Shechem. They destroy Jacob's testimony. God had clearly told Jacob, go home. Jacob had a better idea. It cost him his daughter's reputation, it cost him his own. And then after that, God again says, Jacob, go home. Go back to Bethel. 
and this time he obeys. We could go on and on and on and on. But just because you've compromised God's will for your life and you seem to be getting away with it and things seem to be going okay, you have to ask yourself, do you really fear him? Because he doesn't seem to be beating up on you or you don't even feel that convicted that you've disobeyed him. That's because everything is in the hands of God except the fear of God. That's in your hands. And always, I know in my own life, over and over, when I compromised God's will, there was always a price to pay. There was always a loss. So I just challenge you. You need to fear God. He leaves that in your control. And so let's not be like Moses, who, uh, who refused to fully follow God's will. He compromised on it, and God led him. And it caused many problems later on. Let's not be one of those. Let's be like the midwives. And because they feared God, they feared nothing else. And God gave them houses. They built a name. And that's what we're to do. My clock, again, is not working this week. And uh, so I have no idea how long I've been talking. But uh, in, um, in uh, chapter... In chapter 2, Moses meets Zipporah, his wife, at a well. And, uh, and I have been doing a series of teachings with uh, a group of people called How to Study the Bible. And we've done two of these so far. And if you'd like to check them out, uh, there will be a link underneath the screen here, and you can follow that and, and, and catch up. I plan to do about six in all. We'll do the the next one here in several weeks. But uh, it's really been a lot of fun. And in the last session we just did, I was sharing this. And this is an appropriate time to share here. There are four times in the scriptures where we see a man meeting a woman at a well. And marriage resulted. Marriage resulted. Okay? And the challenge, the, the homework I, assignment I gave to the group was to, uh, to, to identify these four occasions. And they did a great job with it. And, of course, the first one is when Abraham sends Eleazar, the, the one who oversaw his house, to go find a wife for his son Isaac. And you know the story. Eleazar goes back uh, to Badamaram. He comes to the well, and he prays, and Lord, who have... Uh, a young lady who comes down here, if I ask her for a drink of water, she gives it to me, but then volunteers to water all my camels. So I know she's the one. And sure enough, right then, Rebecca shows up and uh, gives him water, waters the candle, camels without being asked, and they, they ride off into the sunset. She becomes Isaac's bride. And then Rebecca and Isaac's son, Jacob, he goes back to the very same well, the Padana Ram, and there he meets Rachel, works for seven years for her, and you know how that story turns out. And then in this week's Torah portion in Exodus, Moses has fled from Pharaoh. He comes to a well, and um, 
some sisters, shepherdesses, come to get water, and there's some shepherds who, who persecute them and give them a hard time. So Moses comes to their rescue, and you can read about it here in chapter 2. And uh, it says in verse 15, Pharaoh heard about the matter and sought to kill Moses. So Moses fled from before Pharaoh and settled the land of Midian. He sat by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's sheep. The shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and saved them and watered their sheep. And as a result, one of those daughters, the eldest, becomes his wife, Zipporah. And then the fourth instance is in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Yeshua goes to a well. And he meets a woman there whose name is not given to us. But she's a Samaritan woman. She's, for all practical purposes, a Gentile. And she becomes part of the bride of Messiah. In fact, she is the first person to whom Yeshua reveals his identity and says, I'm the Messiah. She says, well, when Messiah comes, he'll reveal all these things. And he says to her, I who speak to you am he. He tells her. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. And um, her life is changed forever because of that encounter. Now, what's fun about this is if you take these four instances, they form this wonderful menorah pattern. For example, if we take the middle two, Jacob coming to meet Rachel. Let me get my pencil. Jacob comes and he meets Rachel. And Moses meets his bride Zipporah at a well. And then Eliezer coming to find a bride for the beloved son Isaac and Yeshua meeting the Samaritan woman at a well. We're going to find that the first and fourth instances have something in common, and the second and third instances have something in common. And of course, with Jacob and Moses, what were they doing that caused them to go to the well? And the answer is, they were fleeing. Jacob was fleeing from his twin brother Esau, who had sworn to kill him. But Eleazar, Eliezer, and Yeshua were not fleeing from anyone. They were seeking someone. Eliezer had come to seek a bride for Abraham's beloved only begotten son, Isaac. And Yeshua, who is the beloved only begotten son of God, was seeking a bride as well. And everything about this woman at the well is somehow indicative of the bride of Messiah. Something else that I find interesting uh, in, in John 4, uh, Yeshua meets the woman. She goes into town, tells him all about this man she's met. And so they convince Yeshua to stay with them for two days. And so he stays in that town in Samaria for two days. How long did Eliezer stay at Rebekah's home? Two days. Now, it doesn't specifically state two days, um, when you read the narrative, he, he shows up on the morning of one day and goes to Rebecca's home and meets Laban, and, and they have a big feast and everything. And the next morning, it sounds like they get all ready and take off. Well, that would still be two days. Uh, it's more likely that on the second day is when he talked with Laban, and, and uh, she agreed to go, and they probably took a while to pack up. So 
it still comes out to two days, however you look at it. So we see Eliezer and Yeshua seeking. We see Jacob and Moses fleeing. What we see in these, these two pairs of well stories is we see God and we see ourselves. For all of us are kind of like Jacob and Moses. We're all in flight mode. We're all running away from one thing and trying to find another. But Eliezer and Yeshua, they weren't fleeing from anything. In both cases, they were seeking an encounter with a particular woman. Eliezer didn't know who that woman would be, but we're given her name later, Rebecca. Yeshua did know who the woman would be, but we're not given her name. But to complete the menorah, whoops, there always has to be a center stalk. And this is pretty easy to identify because between the story of Jacob, which goes right on to the end of Genesis, and the story of Moses, which starts there at the beginning of Exodus, there's one monumental biblical figure who comes between Jacob and Moses. And who is that figure? Of course, it's Joseph. Joseph. And which figure in the Hebrew Scriptures reflects the life of Yeshua more than any other? Of course, that would be Joseph. In every menorah pattern, it seems, the center stalk is always Messiah. And here it's the picture of Messiah, Joseph himself. Well, anyways, we didn't talk a lot about this portion in Exodus, but I wanted to give you some of the seasonings. I wanted to give you uh, some dessert if you've been studying this portion over the years. And I hope that these insights and things that have been on my heart this week are a blessing to you. But here are some discussion questions for you. Number one, think about what you have learned about names for a moment. In light of this, what are your thoughts on Revelation 2.17? I'll let you look that up on your own. Number two, why is suffering unavoidable in this life? How have you been changed by it? One of the things the rabbi says is that the problem is the solution, and I have found that true in my life consistently. So whatever the suffering is, whatever the problem is you have encountered in your life, you hold on, you stay strong, you fear God and love him and love others, and you come through that thing and you'll find out that it itself is a solution to something that you could not foresee. Number three, on a scale of one to ten, ten being the highest, How do you rate your fear of God? And on the same scale, how do you rate your fear of everything else? This is probably the most important question on this list. And then number four. We looked at stories of great men who met great women at Wells. As part of the bride, you and I are part of the bride, what well do you visit in order to meet with your Messiah? So, with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father and our King, thank you. Thank you for the wonder of your Torah, and I pray that you've unveiled our eyes this morning to to see some of those wonders. I pray you continue to speak to our hearts through the things we've discussed, and and may your truth continue to shine in us and reveal those things in us that need to change, the things in us that need to go. 
And I pray you continue to make us the people that you want us to be. And I ask this in Yeshua's precious name. Amen.